I get it. Like I get people want to be skinny. I get people want to be healthy. And yes, it makes sense that you want to be skinny. We live in a world that's obsessed with being skinny. It makes sense that you want to take care of your health as you should. But when it takes over your brain to such a high percentage, don't fool yourself. Be honest with yourself. That is not health and it's really not in line with our Jewish values. And does that mean to neglect your health? A hundred percent not. It just means that some things are in our control, some things are out of our control. And if you need to and if you need to think about food more than twenty to thirty percent of your day in order to control your weight, that's not health. I'm Esther, and you are listening to On Your Own, a podcast for Jewish girls living away from home. Each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you confidently navigate life on your own so you can achieve real growth and independence and take ownership of this foundational stage of your life. For additional resources, tips, and to stay up to date on future episodes, sign up for the On Your Own newsletter, linked below in the description. Looking forward to spending some time with you today. And now, to this week's episode. Welcome back to On Your Own. My guest today is Gila Glassberg. Gila is a registered dietitian, intuitive eating counselor, and host of the Get Into It with Gila podcast. Today, we discuss real health. What does it mean to actually be healthy? Especially, how can you take care of your health when you have limited resources and are living away from home? Gila left home when she was 13 years old, 13. So we discuss what that was like for her and how her relationship with food changed and evolved over the years and how she came into being a dietitian. We discuss her approach to health and practical advice for how to take care of your health and eat healthy in an environment like seminary or if you're in a dormitory where you're not able to make all of your own food choices. We also discuss the correlation between leaving home and becoming obsessed with food and how to navigate that and go through that. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. So many incredible insights and just life lessons in general. It's not all about the food. So let's get into it. When did you leave home for the first time and what were those first few years like for you? So I left home when I was 13. I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm the fourth of nine, big family, and um, I went away for high school. So I, I lived in Teaneck by my by my second cousins. Um, this is actually like an interesting story, um, but I have a sister one year older than me. Her name is Sima, and um, we never got along like as kids. Like we always fought and like a lot of competition and like same friends type of thing. You know, we're one we're literally one year apart. She's November sixth. I'm November eighteenth. Like we're like one year and twelve oh, days apart. That's so. Mom-ish. Yeah, like momish, and like since I grew up in such a small community, like we were even in class together sometimes, like seventh and eighth graders. So like we were kind of like twins, but not twins, you know. Um, and we're also like extremely different, obviously. Like you know, everyone's different, but we were like very, we are very different. And she went to school in Philadelphia, and she loved it. She was very happy, and I was planning on going there, and I didn't actually want to go there because it was like a little bit more on the Basiaco side. And I actually really wanted to go to a school called Batora, which was in Muncie. And I had a very good friend who went, who was going there. And I think my, my parents felt like it was a little bit too modern. Like they, like I grew up like not yeshivish, not modern, but I feel like they thought that school was a little bit too modern. 
And then I, I don't really know exactly what happened because I was only like 12, 13, but um, it fell through. Like in the summer, basically, I'm pretty sure it was like August. My mom was like, okay, you're going to Batora. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she's like, and, and it happens to be my family went to Bungalow Colony in the summer. So my cousin, Joyce, who's like my first cousin once removed, so my father's first cousin, is was like very is very close with my family. And she came for a Shabbos to visit. And obviously I was a kid at the time. I didn't really understand, but my mom's like, yeah, you're going to live by Joyce's house. I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought I was going to Philly. So she's like, Oh, it fell through. You're going to get to go to the school of your choice. Like, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to switch. I was like, wanted to go there, but then I like made a, you know, just like, I I knew I was going to the other school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to the other school. It's going to be fine. And then I found out that summer that I was living in Teaneck. So it was a little like crazy. And I wanted, I wanted to live away from home. Um, I grew up in a really small community. There was only six girls in my class. So my daughter, who's almost 11 now, she's in BBY here. There's five classes of like 20 plus girls. So she, uh-huh. she and I like don't – like when I went for her interview in the school, I was like so overwhelmed for myself and for her. And now she's just like, you know, it's so different. It's such a different culture. Um, but – I didn't, I wasn't such a big school that I went to. There was like 20, 25 girls in my, in my class. And I was really excited to leave home. Um, yeah, I'm just going to admit that as a kid, I really didn't like having a lot of siblings. I'm like the type of person that like needs a lot of my own space and my own time. And I was like right in the middle, you know? So I was really happy to leave home. Honestly, when I was 13, I really liked living with my cousins. I was really close with my, with Joyce and she, they had a son, his name is Akiva and he's one year younger than me. We were like close cousins. Um, and I just like, liked the independence. I was always a pretty independent kid. I liked not having to take care of my younger siblings. Like it was a totally think about it. Like I lived at home with five younger siblings who I had to like help with. And, and then I lived at my cousin's house. They had another kid my age. It was just like totally different experience. So most like, right off the bat, I was very happy, but there was definitely times where it was like really weird and really hard. Like I remember like the first Hanukkah just being like, okay, I'm not lighting Hanukkah candles with my own family or like not being able to go home when I wanted to go home or just like missing my siblings. Like like we have this, we had this like tradition in my house. Like when my older siblings went, like they also went away for high school. We all went away for high school. It's like, I remember when they would come back for like a Shabbos, we would all like attack them. Like I missed my family a lot, but I also really like living away from my family, you know? And what was the family dynamic like that you joined? What was your second cousin's family like? So it was totally different because they, um, they lived in Teaneck, which is again, like much more modern than the way I, I was saying before we started recording, I grew up in Scranton, which is a very yeshivish community. Um, um, we were not considered like yeshivish. My father grew up there and he grew up there because my grandparents moved there. They lived there for 50 years. My grandfather was a Rebbe there for 50 years. So again, so I'm one of nine. So I have five sisters and three brothers. I'm the fourth. So I have three older, five younger. My cousins who live in Teaneck, so already like hashkafically a little bit different. They had three boys and Akiva was their youngest, the one who was a year younger than me. So already they had two of their older boys out of the house. They only had three kids. They didn't have any girls and they weren't raising little kids anymore. So it was like a completely different experience than living um, with my family. I also grew up in a big family and I remember something I used to think about, especially at the age of 13, was that I'd never had my own room. I always used to think about that. I like I never had my own room my whole life, um, and I can imagine yeah. just that excitement of like I, I'm assuming you had your own room there and you were able to yeah 
Wow, that's very interesting. You still had your family, but you also had your space. Um, yeah. That's very interesting. But you were 13. There's so much going yeah. on, like within yourself at that age. And how are you able to deal with that away from your mom? Right. So to be honest with you, I wasn't, I didn't really have a close relationship with my mom. And also I was a teenager. So like when I look back on it, like it was really, there were really challenging parts, but I think if you would have asked me when I was 13, I would have been like, this is amazing. Like, I don't have anyone telling me what to do and I don't need to listen to anybody or like, like I, I could do whatever I want. Not that I could do whatever I want, but like, I didn't have, I just was kind of like enjoying the independence, but um, obviously like, I don't think that 13 year olds should live away from home. Um, but I think that every parent makes that choice for their kids, you know? So like, I don't know what my parents were thinking at when I was 13 because I'm not them. And my mother actually passed away since she passed oh. away five years ago. So I couldn't really even ask her, but like, we just differ in personalities as well. So like she is more in that, in that way of like chill, you'll figure it out. And I'm more, I don't want to say I'm a helicopter mom cause I'm not, but like I have a much harder time um, not knowing where my kids are, like what they're doing or who their friends are. And um, I'm not saying like she, I'm not saying like she didn't know, but like, I think she was just like really busy, honestly. Like I'm the fourth, she was raising a bunch of kids. She was working. My father was working like, I don't know, life was chaotic, you know? Wow. What was your relationship with food like before leaving home? And how did that relationship evolve after you left? It's such a good question, by the way, because like there's such a interface between like me leaving home slash my relationship with food and how my really my career started. So I'll tell you. Um, so for my personal statement as a dietitian, I wrote this is how I started it. Growing up as the fourth of nine, my mother never made sure that we ate healthy. She just made sure that we ate. So as a kid, I happens to be I was a, I was a pretty skinny kid. Um, there were some kids in my family that were like more on the heavier side, and I would say both of my parents were like more in like larger bodies. And um, I don't really think I had like any thoughts about my food until maybe like sixth or seventh grade, when like you know people would talk about it or like unfortunately like make fun of people and call them fat like I definitely had some sort of reference to like fat is bad and skinny is good um not that I think that at all now but I'm saying when I was a kid but um my mom was always on a diet but she was always like very fearful of like anorexia and bulimia and eating disorder she never like really put that on us and definitely not on me maybe maybe there was talk about like dieting on some of my other siblings who were like considered in a larger body but not for me, but I did, I, I already was formulating some thoughts ar around it. And when I went to, when I moved away from home in ninth grade, so I don't, I don't know if you know Teaneck, but I lived right by Cedar Lane, which is like one of the main strips in Teaneck. And there was um, a kosher pizza store and a kosher candy store. And in Scranton, there was nothing kosher, no kosher stores. And it was just like so exciting. Like I could walk to the pizza store and, and I did, I would go out for pizza a lot. I would go out buy like candy with my friends. I remember like walking through the candy store and just like buying candy. Like that wasn't like ever a thing. And I didn't really like pay much attention to like my weight or my eating. I just like sort of ate what I wanted and stopped when I was like, I didn't have so much like emotional connection to like eating or not eating and in ninth grade. And I would say like maybe towards the end of ninth grade, I realized like my friends are like obsessed with dieting. Not, and I was, I'm not like blaming them. I'm saying like there was like a culture in my school with like many people who 
or in high school, there's just like a culture in my school. Like, I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to eat that. Um, oh my God, I'm going to get so fat. Like, like I had a lot of girls in my, in my class who were like really into being like super skinny and would talk about it all the time. And they would talk about their food and they would like, even probably like display some eating disorder behaviors, you know, like talk about like, like just knowing what I know now. And like, there was a girl who was diagnosed with anorexia who my, who's a good friend of mine who just, thank God now she's recovered and she's a eating disorder therapist and she's amazing. But there was just like so much emphasis on it in my class. And I actually went to Mosheva that summer. And I remember like, again, like there was just like so much independence that I had, like in Mosheva, like you have a canteen. So you had like, let's say like $10 to spend a day, like something ridiculous, like a lot of money to spend per day. And I would get like a chip, which, which is like a 400 calorie, like um, two cookies with ice cream. I hope that's not triggering for anyone. I'm just giving some context. I don't know. I just like didn't think about it. We eat like grilled cheese every day. And, I, and it happens to be like at some point I realized like, wow, I really gained like a lot of weight, you know, like, or it started to like really register on my radar. And then I started, and I have a very specific memory when I was in 10th grade. Um, my brother became bar mitzvah, my younger brother, he's two years younger than me. And um, I went shopping for like clothes for the bar mitzvah. And I remember crying in the dressing room and saying, I'm so fat. Like I really, that's probably like the, where like I started to think about it a lot, like oh my god, I have to lose weight, and I I have I have a friend who like she we talk about this now. She's like oh my god, I can't believe I did that to you. Like she was like so into dieting, she was like the expert dieter. She, I was like okay, you're gonna be in charge of me, and she would like come over to me and be like, what are you eating? Why are you eating potato cocoa? It's horrible. And like throughout my plate, and I was like okay, like no concept of like what people think is healthy, what people think is unhealthy. And, um, my friend, we were all, we would do like these dieting competitions, whoever lost the most weight, blah, 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 like so much, um, emphasis, it became like obsessive, like, and anyways, my personality is a little bit obsessive, like OCD tendencies. It's like people have a predisposition, predisposition towards anorexia and eating disorder. So like, that's one of them where you just like, sort of like start to display like OCD tendencies. I don't have a diagnosis of OCD, but just like you know, like clinging to things that you, that you're doing, like, let's say not eating a certain thing. And then it's always reinforced by compliments, like people around you being like, wow, you have so much willpower, you lost so much weight. And then like the obsession continues, right? Cause it's like praise. So, um, I have like a lot of specific memories of being like, okay, like try not to eat this and try not to eat that. And, and then like feeling out of control, like, oh my God, I had one pretzel, I have to eat a hundred pretzels. Like, just like the typical like restrict binge restrict cycle that I hear about now as a dietitian and help people um, work through. And um, there was just like a really scary point in my life where I was like, instead of not eating X, Y, Z, why don't I just try not to eat? And like, I don't want to get into like any triggering details, but just like I have very strong personality. And again, with like those OCD tendencies, even though you think you're strong, you're not because really like the eating disorder, disordered eating is like controlling you. But I just like lost a lot of weight and I got so many compliments and people would be like, wow, you have so much willpower. You're so skinny. How do you do it? Blah, 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 blah. And again, I, I hung out with like boys. Like I was in a co-ed, not school, but like I had friends, like I was just getting a lot more attention from boys and it was like very reinforcing for me. And then when I was in 11th grade, I went on a trip with two of my really close friends. We went to um, California and nobody was really seeing the way I was eating because I was living by my cousin's house and I didn't live with my parents. I barely saw my parents. I wasn't really close to my parents. It's not like I was like, it wasn't like I was confiding in them about these types of things. I think I do remember my mom being like, I'm a little worried about you, blah, 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 blah. But I just like, I was able to like very easily like sweep it under the rug because I wasn't like living at home or whatever. 
I don't think my cousin really noticed because she didn't have girls. So she didn't really like, she wasn't like in tune with that type of stuff. And maybe she even, she also was dieting, you know, we were all dieting. The whole world was dieting, you know? Right. So that's when like uh, my friends saw the way I was eating on the trip and they were like, you're not really eating. And like, I had all these food rules and I was like, you're right. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm so, I'm so stuck in it. Like, and I feel like that it was still hard. Like I still had my food rules, but I feel like that trip kind of made me realize like, this isn't really normal, like the way I'm eating. Mm -hmm. And, um, I never developed an eating disorder, thank God. And I just sort of like, I was like the healthy girl. Like I was like, I would start reading nutrition labels and I said, I want to be a dietitian. And even though I had no idea what a dietitian was, like I want to, I want to teach people about nutrition. Like what is healthy? Is it, is it really healthy to eat whole wheat? Is it really healthy not to eat cake? And then I was just sort of like the healthy girl. Like everybody knew like I would only eat X, Y, Z and I wouldn't eat that. And I was definitely restrictive. Thank God. I don't think what we would call it now is like orthorexia, which is like a diagnosed eating disorder that you are obsessed with eating only healthy food, um, but you are eating enough calories. So I was not like in a calorie deficit, thank God. But I was just like, it was like so much a part of my life of like making sure I ate healthy and exercise. And that's basically how my relationship shifted from one way to a very different way. And that continued throughout the rest of high school till the end of 12th grade, would you say? That kind of healthy girl identity. Um, I'm not dieting. I'm just trying to be healthy. Very much. Very much. Like it was very much a part of my identity and in seminary as well. Like like I was the, like I always talked about healthy food and I would even, so my sister Sima, um, this is funny. Like we ended up going to the same seminary. So we didn't go to high school together, but she went to Tomar Devora. Then I went to Tomar Devora and she was, so she was my Shana Better. And in Shana Aleph, we didn't have access to a kitchen, but in Shana Bet, the Shana Betters did. So I would like, I would, I would be the girl. It's so embarrassing. And like I taking my schnitzel and like peeling the crumbs off and um, people would copy me, you know, like, or I would go to my sister's kitchen and I would make quinoa and vegetables. Not that that's bad. I'm just saying like, and then there was, and also like, I happened to be like very frugal, probably has a lot to do with my high school years of like having no money and like not living with my parents and like trying to fend for myself. But it wasn't like I had, it wasn't like if I didn't like the, like the dinner, I was going to like go buy a $20 salad. Like that wasn't happening. So I just was like, you're going to starve if you don't eat. Like I told myself that. So like, I was like, okay, so I'll have schnitzel. Okay. So I'll have, like, there was a normal, there was like a normalizing in seminary for me. Um, there was also probably like a guilty feeling of like, Oh no, I really shouldn't be eating this, but like, what else am I going to eat? So I feel like, I feel like that's probably like what people go through in, in therapy slash working with an intuitive eating dietitian. But I just sort of like naturally went through that because I was in seminary and there was nothing else to eat and I wasn't going to like starve. At least I had that like much like healthy uh, mentality that I couldn't like, it wasn't worth it to starve, you know? So I started eating more foods that I hadn't eaten. Like I, I don't think in, I don't think in 12th grade, I ever ate any white flour, like ever. Um, I don't think I ever ate cake. I don't think I ever ate candy. Like I was, maybe I did a little bit, but like mostly in my head, I was like, don't eat that. Never eat that. It's not good for you. It's poison, you know, which it's not. Um, and I was like, I'm going to be a dietitian. And I will, I will like, just tell you a little bit about myself in high school. So like, I was like, I was in like the lowest class. I was like, not a good student. And 
I don't really think it was because I wasn't a good student. I think that unfortunately, like sometimes that happens to like the weaker students that they don't get like the attention that they need. I didn't live at home. Like there was a lot of factors going on and I just sort of like felt really stupid and I felt like, what's the point? So I wasn't like a strong student. But then when I became interested in nutrition, I was like, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to do it no matter what. I'm going to become a doctor. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was like a science-based field. I thought like you learn about food and you teach people what to eat, like kind of like what I was already doing, you know? Um, and, but I had this like goal, like I said before, I have like this like strong, I do have a lot of like willpower and, sh- and tenacity. That's what I've been told. A lot of tenacity. So I was like, I will become a nutritionist. I will like take, teach the firm world about health. And you're right. Like it was a goal of mine. It was like really important to me. Um, yeah. So seminary, I feel like I helped me normalize my eating. Like it wasn't as obsess- obsessive, but it was still very much a part of my life. Like a big part of my identity was like, I eat this type of food and I don't eat this type of food. And I'm very into food and I'm very into health and I'm very into cooking and I'm very into recipes, like very much like a part of me, which it still is by the way, but just minus the like diety stuff. So, um, so I went to, I went to seminary and then I came back and I didn't get into Queens college because I had horrible grades in high school. So I went to a community college called Queensboro even though by now, like you already heard like about five years of my life, not living with my parents, this was like a whole new level of not living with my parents because my parents actually moved from Scranton to Rochester, which is six hours away from New York, as opposed to Scranton, which is like three hours away from New York. And at that point I was like extremely motivated student. Like, like in seminary, it was like funny. Like I took really good notes. Like my, my, my whole, like almost like personality changed in terms of my like responsibility level, because I was like, I really wanted to be an adult. I really wanted to be independent. I really wanted to make money. I really wanted to get this degree. So I didn't get into Queens College. And when you go to community college, which is really important to know for like weak, weak high school students that you still have a major bright future ahead and don't let like your high school teachers and administration tell you that you're not smart because you are. You just might have a different way of learning. Um, so I went to Queensboro and you go to community college and then you switch to um, like a city college then they just take, if you're there for like, I think a certain amount of credits, like it could be just like one year then they don't even look at your high school grades. They only look at those grades. Oh, wow. That's so cool. So I want to go back a little bit to something that I noticed was brought up a lot was that this was something very normal around you when you left home, that it wasn't just you. It was also your cousin who you were living by, all of your friends, praise from people around you. So this is something that was very normalized, but something that I've really noticed is that a lot of people who leave home, especially if they leave home young, or even if it's the first time leaving home a seminary, that food Mm -hmm. becomes a huge topic on heads. And I'm just wondering, like, what, why do you think that is? Why is there such a connection between living on your own and food? Like where, where do those things collide? Such a good question. Do you, what do you think before I answer it? Like what comes to mind? Like what, what, would, what do you think like a random person would say like moving away from home and food? I think it's just a very practical thing that you used to just, it used to just come to you when you're a kid, food just magically appears. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, how am I going to feed myself? Right. Exactly. So like human basic needs, one-on-one is like food, shelter, right? Mm. Um, physical needs sleep, like making sure that you have a bed, that you have a place to live, that you have food, right? Like you could technically live without like clean clothing, but you cannot live without food. Mm, so it's like survival. It's like survival. So 
everyone has a food culture, whether it's positive or negative, there is a food culture that somebody has. Any, any child has it, which is either like, because I always start my sessions off with tell me your earliest childhood memory around food or like the environment of your house with food. And everybody has an answer. It could be, it could be like, oh, I loved my grandmother's potato cocoa and she brought it over every Shabbos and it was so positive. And it could also be, I love my grandmother's potato cocoa and she brought it over every Shabbos and she gave me four pieces and loved watching me eat it. But she would also be like, don't eat too much or you'll gain weight. Right. So that's mm-hmm. like a very conflicted relationship with food. Um, so I think that when you leave home at a younger age, you're forced to um, sort of like deal with that relationship with food at a younger age, which is like, I would say more of like, a, a more mature brain needs to like is needed to really decide how you want to relate with food. What even on a practical level, like, am I the type of person that's going to buy organic food and like spend a little bit more money because I think it's healthier? Not that I not that I think organic's healthier. I'm not I'm not making any statements about that. But um, but just like every person has to has to have some sort of thoughts about food. Like we we just for an example, my supervisor Jessica Setnick, she likes to categorize. Um, she likes to explain like eating disorders and disordered eating by like a normal, healthy person has to think about food 20 to 30% of their day. Right. Because if you don't, you'll die. Right. If you don't 20 to 30%, because think about it, like you're thinking about when you're going to go grocery shopping and how you're going to stock your fridge and what you're going to make for dinner and what you're going to make for Shabbos. And right. Like there's, it's a survival mechanism. Like you have to know like how you're eating that day and think about how much you eat in a day at least three times a day, most right. people, right? right? So where are you getting that food from? Like, it's not like, it's not like it just comes, like you said before, like there has to be somebody who's dealing with the food, right? Then like disordered eating is like 20 to 60% of your day. That's like way too much headspace. And then like anorexia is like 110% because you're like even dreaming about food because like oh. you're so calorically deprived, right? Mm-hmm. So like, it makes sense. Like sur- basic survival is that you have to eat. And I I guess I'll take it one step further. Like we live in like a foodie culture. Like we're all obsessed with food. Um, Food is very a part of Jewish life. Um, And I'm not saying it in a bad way at all. I'm just saying like now, like I always say like Hashem made us have to eat in order to survive and breathe in in order to survive. And food is, he made eating pleasurable. Like there's a reason right? Like we're supposed to enjoy our food it, for, for people who I've, I've said this on my podcast before. Um, I'm quoting my sister-in-law who gives me permission. Like she, she was always like dieting and she always thought like, Oh, I wish I just didn't like food. And during one of her pregnancies, she lost her appetite. Like she just didn't enjoy eating. And she was like, I totally take that back. Yeah. It's miserable. It's miserable. People have told me during COVID when they lost their taste, their sense of taste and smell, they're like, life has a much darker, like I have much more darkness in my day because think about it. Like you wake up, you have your morning coffee and you have your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner and Chavez meals. That is a pick me up. Do people overuse food for pick me ups? Sure. But it is meant to be that food is a, a beautiful, happy, pleasant part of someone's day. You know, it's so interesting what you said about that. Everyone at some point has to confront how they want to relate to food. And that sometimes we're confronted with that at a young age, because for me, even I'm married for over four years, got two kids, and I'm still trying to figure out how much money do I want to spend on food? How how right. important is it for me to invest in that versus saving the money, for example? But for somebody who's so young, even somebody who's first time leaving home as seminary, that's still very young to have to figure that out. How right. is someone supposed to figure that out when they're so young? 
And let me just compound the question, by the way, because I forgot to say this. It's not only, this is not like happening a hundred years ago. This is happening now in 2023 or whenever I went like 15 years ago when I was a teenager. Um, um, there's a, an obsession with healthy eating obsession with being the thin ideal. There's an obsession with like when I was becoming a dietitian, I'm a dietitian for eight years. So like when I was becoming a dietitian was 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, I think there was five from girls in my class. And by the end of my degree, there was like 20. And now forget it. Everyone's become like when I would, when people, you know, like people were like dating and talking about their dating and it was like a joke that like everyone's becoming an OT or a PT and they would ask you. And I'm like, Oh, I'm becoming a dietitian. They're like, Oh, I never, that's so interesting. What did like, what is that? Can you imagine now? Like that's the hottest degree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just compounded because like we're expected to have, um, some sort of moral connection to our eating, like for kids, for sure. Like 18 year old, 19 year old in seminary, um, within the first week or two, and I had this in seminary, but it's probably a million times worse. It's like, Oh, do you eat carbs? Oh, have you ever tried keto? Like, it's well. It will happen within the first day of seminary. I can't. I, I don't know. I haven't been in seminary in a long time, but I can't imagine that it's not like the topic. And I hear I have teenage clients, and I have clients in their twenties. It is. I know it is. I understand why because there's an obsession with it, you know. So your your question was, what was your question? How to deal with it? How are you supposed to just figure out where you stand with food when you're mm-hmm. so young? Like you were saying that when when you left home, um, it sounds like a lot of it was based on what other people were doing at the time, which is so normal for someone so young because we don't have our own opinions yet. I'll tell you from my perspective where I'm holding, trying to figure this out for myself. So for example, um, I'll just give you an example in my own life that like every 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 mother and every family will have to decide this based on um, how they want to raise their kids with their relationship with food. And you, and like you said, you're figuring it out, right? Um, every mother's confronted with that. How many mothers do I see that tell me I was raised with a dieting mother who put me on a diet and I swore I would never do that to my kids. And now that I'm raising my kids, I don't know how to feed them. What do I feed them? Should I feed them pasta? Should I, is our carbs really, if they're bad for me, are they bad for me? Like just so much confusion around what's healthy, what's not healthy. Like how much of my headspace should I be investing in my food? Um, of course, on a practical level, we should be thinking about how much money we should spend on food and should we do takeout? Like how much, how often should we do takeout? Right. So I think just like, I guess making the space for like the question is like number one, very important. So like I was saying in my house, like I want to teach my kids about nutrition and the importance of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and carbs and proteins and fat, but only like on a very basic level. I don't want them to be worrying about it. I don't want them to be thinking about it. I don't want to be praising them for their way of eating. I don't want to be shaming them for their way of eating. I want it to be like, I guess like maybe like the same way that we like try to neutralize like the choice of clothing that they make. Like, like we try to like honor their individuality, like obviously age appropriately. Like we're maybe we'll let like our four-year-old wear like a unicorn dress and not when they're 10, but like we want to teach them health is important, but health is only important when we don't become obsessed with health. That's what I like to think the way that I teach it. So like I said before, orthorexia is like an unhealthy obsession with only eating quote unquote healthy food. That's not healthy. There's nothing healthy about interrogating a waiter to ask how much sugar and oil is in your food and not being able to go out to social events because you're so scared of how much fat is in the food. That's not healthy. That's not normal. Right? So I guess like the, the golden answer is always like balance. But I think for, for girl for kids who are becoming like adults, 
I think there should be like, we need to like arm them. Like we need to teach them that like food's really important. And it's also, it's also really careful not to like develop any obsessions about what to eat and what not to eat. So that that's like, I would have to really like formulate an idea of how to do that. But I think, you know, like, I think for a long time, let's say seminaries were like, we got to teach girls about healthy eating. We don't want them, everybody gains weight. And like, that's not working. That's developing eating disorders. Can we teach them about the totality of food? Yeah. Like you said before, like how to, how to calculate a budget and where to shop for food and how to cook certain foods and the nutritional value of certain foods in a neutral, positive way. I think that would be amazing. It doesn't have to be like, oh my God, it's like panic. That's what happens. It's panic. Like I'm going to go to seminar and I'm going to gain weight and I have to know what to eat and what not to eat. And then what happens? The girls are obsessed with losing weight. They're obsessed with fitting into a certain size. They're, we've created this issue in the Shadok system of like, um, guys only want really skinny girls. That's like, that's, we don't want that. We want like actual health, which is like food is good. You should enjoy it. There are nutrition, there's nutrition science behind food, but it shouldn't take over your life. Like just regular, normal eating. Hmm. Yeah. You said neutral. That's a big, that's a big word. It's very hard though, to be neutral about food, especially when you said we're thinking about it 20 to 30% of your day. That's, it's hard to be neutral about something that takes up so much space and that comes that comes from a really deep survival place within us. Right. How would you define a neutral approach to health? What would that what does that look like? So yeah, so I say I say like neutral to positive, but I do like I do like neutral. Nu- I do like neutral health. I'll tell you because I think that like in in today's world we have a there's a lot of moral judgment around health. So health is is in a way there's a choice to health and in a way there's no choice to health, right? So like um, Hashem decides like what our health is going to be. And then we have a level of hishtadlis of what we could do in ter- to enhance our health, right? And that's, I think that's true, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. nutrition information is a valuable tool um, to enhance our health. So I'm actually teaching nutrition to high schoolers now. I'm teaching in a high school, oh, 11th wow. and 12th grade. And it's really cool to be able to like teach them at a time in my life that was like, so, you know, hard with food. Um, right. But um, I think for, for me, it's like, these are the facts. These are the nutrition facts. I just taught this to the, to the students that when I was in Queens college, I had this amazing professor, professor Kant. She was so good. And she would teach us about the nutrition science of macronutrients, which are like protein, carbs, and fats and micronutrients, which are vitamins and minerals and all the research and how to do research. And she said, you're not going to tell your patients what to do. You're going to inform them that these are the pros of this method. And these are the cons of this method. And what's more important to you, how we make all of our choices, right? The cost benefit analysis. So like, I wish, I wish that we could do that. I wish that that's how nutrition information was explained in a neutral slash positive way. Like, you know, carbs are really important for your brain and proteins are really important for your muscles and fat cushions all your organs and it enhances your, the flavor of food and it helps you digest fat soluble vitamins. How could we fit it into your life? Oh, you hate brown rice? So don't use brown rice as your whole grain. Why not whole wheat pasta? You don't like whole wheat pasta? Why not whole wheat crackers? Maybe Cheerios, right? Like it's so loaded. It's so morally loaded. It doesn't have to be. Just like you make a decision about about anything in your life, how much sleep you're going to try to get and how much movement you're going to try to get. There's no moral value about it. We all have choices to make. We all have things in our life that we can and can't control. We try our best. 
And at the end of the day, there's really no, there shouldn't be, I think, morality attached to it. And I think that the more morality is attached to it, the more people feel hopeless and helpless and they don't engage mm-hmm. in, in understanding nutrition and, and movement and other healthy activities because they just feel so low. They feel so bad about themselves. Cause like if society says that if, if skinny is healthy and they're not genetically predisposed to being skinny and everybody tells them that it's their fault, they're not going to be eating foods that they think are good for them because they already feel so horrible about themselves. Right. Like we, we've created that problem. So to separate the morality from just the food facts, to get informed about the food facts, know what decisions you're making and then make those decisions not from a moral place. It doesn't say anything about what kind of a person you are. Is that what you're saying? Yes, 100%. Hey, that's that's a big one. It's very hard to separate the two because the culture is so shouting that they're basically the same thing. And I guess it's also helpful you mentioned that a lot of our health isn't even in our control. So to really take a step back, I'm hearing and say, there's a lot of things that aren't in my control. And even the things that are in my control, the choices I decide to make aren't saying anything about who I am. They don't, they're not moral. Right. What do you think the biggest mistake that girls who leave home make around food that you've seen? They're influenced by their friends and their, the people around them, which I would say like most people are like into dieting, I think nowadays. And they just like, what I did is just sort of cling to that truth that it's really important to be skinny and like skinny is and, and skinny means not eating cake or whatever thing. Healthy is not eating cake. That doesn't make sense, right? So like for myself, like when I was 13, to me, that made sense. I'm healthy if I'm skinny. And if I'm the way to get skinny is to like eliminate food. Yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't make any sense. But um, to the like, y- you know, like young underdeveloped brain, it's so easy to cling to belief systems that don't really make sense, which is like really a part of teenagehood. But what I try to teach, what I just tried to like really like my first few weeks in this in in teaching is what I was trying to say about this professor Kant, who I absolutely loved, and I would like I would like dream about her class, like I couldn't wait for her class because it was like so it was so like nutrition based and not morally based. She taught us how to do research, and she tried to explain to us where nutrition research comes from and how research could be so skewed, and the strength of the research. Right? Like, is it double blind, random control? I don't want to. I don't want to bore you with these details, but I just taught them last week. And um, is there bias? Are they reporting their bias? Are they reporting negative findings, or are they just? Are they? Um, are they? Is it government funded, or is it funded by the product that they're trying to sell? Right? There's so much. There's so much. There's so many issues with research. Research that kids for sure don't know. I didn't know. And this could be, this is applied to anything in life, whether it's about food or anything. Try to get your facts. Try to understand where you're getting your information from. Are you getting it from the 12 year old at the Shabbos table who just went to a nutritionist and she told her that intermittent fasting is really good? And now you're coming and telling everybody how good intermittent fasting is because she heard that her mother lost 10 pounds in one week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's what people, that's where li- people literally get their nutrition information from. And it's like, why do you believe that? And also, like, we see how many people go on diets, lose weight, and gain it back, and then feel miserable about themselves. Like, we see that, whether it's research or not, we see it in our, I don't know about you, but I see it with the people around me who are always dieting and always talking about food and always obsessing about it and always unhappy with the way they look, no matter how skinny they are. 
I remember in seminary, like when we were learning about like all these like new religious things that I had never really learned about. I remember like, one of my Rebame just being like, this is about like being really honest with yourself, which is so hard to do, but it really is about, you know, I, I like to say this to my clients. Um, this is like one of my favorite things. I say this to them a lot is adulthood is think of adulthood as like taking a junk drawer out of your drawer. And inside that drawer is like all your belief systems. And you take those, that drawer and you dump it out onto your desk and you like spread it all out. And you're like, okay, these are the belief systems of my life. Like a lot of us have believed that like skinny equals beautiful, right? A lot of us have believed that even like religiously, right? Like we were saying before, hashkathically, that this is, this type of, this is better than this. We have beliefs about every single thing, how important money is, right? How important it is to spend certain amounts of money on our food and our clothing and Watching TV, not watching TV, turning off your brains, going to therapy. Is it bad? Is it, should it be stigmatized? We all have those beliefs that we've, I say, like we sort of picked it up by osmosis. We don't have a choice. We've been taught to believe certain things as kids. We didn't choose those beliefs, right? And as adults, we do choose our beliefs. So if you're getting your belief system from, I don't know, like, Cosmo, like that magazine, right? Yeah. Like then like ask yourself, is that really where I want to get my information from and live my life by? Even if it's a Jewish publication, when you read about how amazing keto is, do you know who wrote that article? Do you know if they have any research background? Do you know if they have a degree? I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about anybody. I'm just saying like, know your facts. Mm-hmm. Like part of life is about knowing your facts. And and I, when I was teaching this to the girls last week, I'm like, don't think all research is bad. Don't think everybody's corrupt. Just like know your facts, you know, and know how to get your facts. It's so interesting because it sounds like I had a, a quite a similar experience actually in high school. So ever, um, throughout high school and seminary. Um, but it sounds like you were kind of going against the tide in the way that you were the one who was sticking with her self-control and sticking with her food rules when everybody else couldn't, when nobody else was able to do that, you were getting a lot of praise for it. Um, so there's a feeling it sounds like of I'm going against the tide. I'm succeeding in something that nobody else is. But I guess if you're able to actually look at the facts, you can realize going against the tide actually looks very different than just being the perfect version of what everyone else is trying to do. It's like starting a whole new version, looking at health totally mm-hmm. differently. It's it's a hard thing to do, but for somebody who's trying who who wants to be maybe we could say unique, I think that maybe it's a helpful thing to say. Like actually look at look at the facts. It might be very, very different than what everybody else is saying. And if you go for it, then you can actually pave a path for yourself. It doesn't have to be I'm making away for myself an identity for myself through being the healthiest out of everybody else. It could actually just right. look like I'm redefining health totally based on how I've understood things for myself. That's really well said. Beautiful. I agree with you. You're saying, I think that what you're saying is like, especially in high school when we, when we are just trying to like be unique, but also be like everybody else. So you're saying like, um, if everybody's trying to be quote unquote healthy and quote unquote skinny, and I can be the skinniest, therefore I am being unique, but really I'm just trying to be like everybody else, but just the best as opposed to being my unique true self and being like, wait a second, I don't want to have an eating disorder. I don't, it's not worth it to me to be skinny if all I'm going to think about is food. Right. And yeah, that is going against the tide, especially as a teenager. Um, so that's why intuitive eating that's to just to conclude my story is that I started working as a dietitian and right away, right off the bat, I felt like I was the diet police. And I was like, 
okay, wrong degree. And you heard all my, my whole long story about how I wanted to become a dietitian. So I really felt honestly very depressed and very down to the point where I was like, I have to speak to somebody um, about what to do now because like I thought my identity is being a dietitian and I thought my identity is like really teaching people about health and it's and it's not. You didn't enjoy it? No, because I really felt like I was the food police. I felt like you're the dietitian. You have to go tell people what to eat. And I was like, that's totally again. That's not what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to teach people. I wanted to educate people. I wanted to empower people. I wanted to, sh- I didn't want to be like, are you sure you want to have a second piece of fried chicken? Like it's so, again, it's so, it minimizes what the degree is and it minimizes what like my passion is. So when I found out about intuitive eating, that's like, that's like way going against the tide because intuitive eating was, is, and was a movement of like, we don't have to diet and it's okay to be fat. And it doesn't mean like we're promoting fat. That's not what it means. It just means like, let's neutralize the word fat because there's fat people and there's skinny people and there's tall people and there's short people. And Hashem made people with brown eyes and blue eyes and blonde hair and dark hair. And does that mean to neglect your health? A hundred percent not. It just means that some things are in our control. Some things are out of our control. And if you need to, and if you need to think about food more than 20 to 30% of your day in order to control your weight, that's not health. And that is, and that's why like people are so confused about what I do. Cause they're like, aren't you a dietitian? Like I am a dietitian, but I'm, I like to think of myself as, as much more than that. Because I, like I said before, like I try to help people understand their values that when you use food as a tool for self-care, amazing. You want to increase your fruits and vegetables. You want to cook with other types of foods and feel better. Great. If it's self-punishment, it's not going to help you. If it's self care, great. Let's figure out how to do it together. Um, this plan didn't work out this way this week. That's okay. Maybe that's, it's because of X, Y, Z. Maybe we could try to shift it this way. But like, for some reason, it's become very much intertwined with our moral value. And if we don't, if we're not skinny, something's wrong with us. We we're lazy. We're fat. We lack willpower. If we're skinny, then we're amazing. We're strong. We're beautiful. We care about ourselves. That's not true. Again, that is minimizing people into sizes. So especially as a Jewish from Orthodox religious community, we don't, we don't minimize people into just the way that they look. So, so is it, I think this is where people get stuck. Is it important to take care of your health? A hundred percent. It's your, it's our job to do proper hishtadlis. And proper hishtadlis is not to think about food a hundred percent of your day because they're like, I, I tell people to make a circle. And I tell them to like put all their values in that circle, right? And like give it a percentage. So again, I said before, like food, how much is food and body image taking up in your head? How much is your is your um, percentage as a Jew, as a religious person, as a from woman, as a mother, as a wife, as an employee, as an as a business owner, as a hundred different identities we have, right? And food is taking up more than twenty to thirty percent. What is your life like? What is your quality of life like? It doesn't. I get it. Like I get people want to be skinny. I get people want to be healthy. And yes, it makes sense that you want to be skinny. We live in a world that's obsessed with being skinny. It makes sense that you want to take care of your health as you should. But when it takes over your brain to such a high percentage, don't fool yourself. Be honest with yourself. That is not health. And it's really not in line with our Jewish values. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking about food 100% of the day, then when are you thinking about Hashem? Right. When are you thinking about, yeah, I guess also food, Maybe it's helpful to think that that 20, 30% of the day of the food, yes, it's to get the pleasure from it, but it's also a means to a greater end. Right. So that rest of your day can be full of other things. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Wow. Wow. If you were able to to go back and 
do things differently with the way that you ate when you left home? Would you just continue with how it started off with just being carefree, going to the pizza store, eating, you know, those massive uh, ice cream sandwiches and camp? Do you think you would just go back there and try and leave the rest out? Or would you want to stick with the way things worked out? Or would you want to try something totally different? What would your ideal have looked like? I don't think I would change anything because I think that if I just, either way, if I just continue to starve myself or if I just continue to eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say either of those are health because part, again, part of our life is to be educated and make informed decisions. Um, and everything that happened to me has totally created my life. You know, like I, it's hard, it's hard sometimes to look back on it. Cause it's like scary. Like I think about it for my own kids, like, wow, like one friend, one dieting mother, one a compliment could um, influence a teenager so strongly. But on the other hand, what I teach, this is how I coach moms is like, don't be, don't be afraid. Like, don't be afraid. Empower yourself. Your kids are going to come home and say, I look so fat because my friend told me and I don't want to wear that dress anymore. Don't be afraid. Welcome the conversation. Tell them why you don't, why you don't care if they're fat, why fat is not a bad thing. Tell them why, um, we don't really talk about other people's bodies. Tell them that Hashem made bodies in all different different shapes and, t- and sizes. Tell them that you have the right to choose what foods you're going to eat and don't let, um, the more you try to restrict, the more you're going to feel out of control around food. Or Food is beautiful. F- uh, f- food is connecting. Food is how we take care of people. Food is how we help people when they're going, sh- sitting Shiva. When we, you know, right now what's going on in the war in Israel, we're sending food, we're sending love, we're sending connection. Um, I think that that's like really powerful. And that's kind of like the only way I could really say this with confidence is because of my experience. And the only way that I'm confident to teach this to other moms is because of my experience. So I think that both extremes are not good. And I think that the middle ground is always knowing the facts and making a choice and, and sticking to your choice and sometimes changing your choice based on new information that you get and pivoting, but not to feel hopeless or helpless or afraid or just go by societal standards just cause, you know? For those who find themselves in a situation where they're not able to choose what food is being served to them, and they're also on a very limited budget, Mm -hmm. what would you advise to them if either they really don't like the food or if they are trying to be healthier and it really, the food that's being served really doesn't align with that? What, what would you advise to somebody who's in that situation? You mean in seminary, right? Like you're talking about more like specifically in sem? So the truth is when I was in high school, I was actually in that experience as well. Those who are in the dormitories in high school, um, I also wasn't able to choose the food, mm-hmm. but mainly it would be, it would be in seminary. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like, um, I think like going back to that, like wheel is always like really powerful. That I was talking more about like a wheel of values, but now let's just use it for anything. So like, let's say like, what are your, what's important to somebody in terms of their food, right? So you said like, it has to be budget friendly. Um, they're like, I don't want to say they're picky, but let's say they don't, they don't like every food. Cause you said like, they won't like the food. Like you said, they want to focus on some level of health, let's say nutrition for food, right? So you create that wheel and you understand like, what's like most important to you right now in your life, right? In seminary your budget might be more important to you than let's say nutrition because it just is what it is. Or like you are a little bit more flexible with your eating. Like you don't always love the the food, but you might make a choice like, okay, I don't love it, but 
I have to eat and my budget's really small. So you make like sort of like an assessment of like how much you're willing to like stretch. And this is more like a skill that you learn as an adult, right? Like, I don't know if I would have been able to do this as a teenager or even in seminary, but I think that when I, when I speak to young, younger clients, I try to tell them like everything I'm teaching you now is about food, but it's also a life skill, right? So may realize that when you, you, when we make a choice, we, there's always a cost benefit analysis, right? And nothing's really long term, like when it comes to our relationship with food and, and our food choices. Because if you're in seminary for that one year and your and your budget's limited and we're to shine one day, you'll have a little bit more flexibility with your budget, right? Right. And also just knowing like again, there's some things that are just out of our control. Right now your budget's small. You don't have much earning potential, but one day you might one day you might not. Maybe Hashem will put you in like the not wealthy category, you know? Um, like we some things we don't get to choose. So um, again, like this would have maybe been hard for me in seminary. So I'm just, it's a little bit lofty, but like educate yourself about like food. Like, let's say for example, you don't like the seminary food. Can you repurpose it? Can you go to the shuk and buy really cheap fruits and vegetables and quinoa and make yourself that? Like, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to buy chicken and meat, right? Maybe you could make yourself tuna. Like, like as it's, it's not like the cheapest food, but it's not the most expensive food, right? So when I was in college, we had to do this. We had to like create a, a budget-friendly meal without using a complete protein. So a complete protein would be like chicken, meat, eggs. So um, so to get a complete protein in a different way, you could also combine grains with legumes or legumes with seeds or seeds with leg- like those three, combining two of them. If you eat like a can of beans and a bunch of nuts... That would be a complete protein. The reason, yeah, the reason why is because there's um, some amino acid in complete proteins like chicken and fish and meat. We have all the amino acids, and um, in the grains and the seeds, we only have some. So when we combine them, we get all of them. So, That's so cool. Yeah, so it is cool, but it's also when you have a more like complete protein like chicken, it's more like just protein and not really carbs versus like chickpeas has both carbs and protein. But again, that's just like neutral information. You need protein and carbs. So like if you knew like around how much you needed, then you could calculate like I need about this and I need about this. I don't really do that with intuitive eating. I go much more based on hunger and fullness, but nutrition information here would be important. Food information would be important. Like when we, when I was in college, we had to learn how to read circulars. I never read circulars. Did you? I never heard of that. What is that? Circulars are the things that the stores give out that ex- they tell you like the sale prices. Okay. You know, like when you walk into a store and you're like, tomatoes are on sale. And, and just to know that like, yeah, just to know that like stores do that to get you in the store so that you'll buy other foods, like information about food prices and food budgeting and nutrition. And then there's like another whole aspect of cooking, right? Cooking is an amazing skill to try to learn in seminary. It's not always feasible, but it is, if it is feasible, if you have an oven or even just like a cutting board and learning about trying to expand your palate, if you're like, I don't like the food in seminary, can you try one new food a week, right? I would do that with my, with my clients, like trying to get them to expand their palate. Or can you look at the food, look, go to the shuk, look at the foods that you like that, you know, your mom made, or you could call your mom or call your friend or call your friend's mom who you love their food, ask them for the recipe and try it. Try to, and don't give up the first time. I know that like now I make challah all the time and I, and I was recently at a challah bake and like a few women next to me were like, I don't know how to make challah. I've never made challah. And I'm like, okay, listen, the first time I made challah, it was really, it was so crumbly. I didn't know you had to keep mixing it. Like just keep mixing, just keep mixing, right? Do it with, maybe do it with a seminary teacher. Like, again, I guess like what I always come down to is like, don't be a victim of your situation. Like try as much as you can to like use the resources around you to help you in the situation. Don't just be like, 
and people do this. I know. Don't just be like, okay, in seminary, I'm just going to eat like food that I hate. And like, that doesn't feel good in my body. Cause like, I have no other choice. You have other choices. You have other choices. Is it the most ideal choice? Can you eat like chicken and brown rice and broccoli every night? Probably not. That's just not realistic. But can you say to yourself like, okay, in five years when Imrita Sham, I'm more settled, I want to have more complete meals and I want to feed that to my kids. Great. But right now I can't because I'm limited with my funds or I'm limited with my time or I don't know how to cook yet. That that's This is like, you know, like I try to let my kids help me in the kitchen. I'm not always so good at it. And even though it makes it so much slower, I try to think in five years, they're going to be so quick at this, right? We're all slower when we first try something. So, and, and then balancing that with like seminary is really busy and you're trying to also learn a lot of Torah and like maybe going back to your wheel of values right now, like 70% of your pie is taking up learning new things about Torah and 20% is about like 10% is about making sure you eat, you know, and nothing's going to happen. If like you just like eat the seminary food for one year, nothing will happen. You'll be fine. You know, that's coming from a dietitian, everyone. <laughs> right. That's probably helpful for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. One year of your so. life doesn't determine your whole future and you're not a victim of your circumstances. Well, I love everything that you just said there. And I'll just add that. I wish I had learned how to cook in seminary because the, a year later, I got married and I didn't know how to cook anything. And it was so incredibly overwhelming. I can't even begin to right. say. So it's actually a skill that can come really in handy long term as well. Uh, just to learn a little bit about that. 100%. So I end off with a question. It's a theoretical question. If you would be able to get a time machine that was going to take you back to a random point when you were living away from home, living at your cousins, and you were only allowed to tell yourself one thing before you would be taken back to the present. One one thing could be a piece of advice, an insight into the future. What would be the one thing that you would tell yourself? Hmm. So I actually have a very strong memory when I was in, I think it was going into 12th grade. I was very nervous about my future because I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't doing well in school. I didn't know I wanted to be a dietitian, but I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't have like a strong, like, you know, science background or anything. And I remember like crying to a friend being like, what's going to happen? I'm going to like live on the street. And I also just to understand the context, my sister, my oldest sister, Yali, um, is a doctor. And she went to Queens College and she became a doctor and she was always like really smart and really competent, capable. And I, I knew that when she came back from seminary, she lived at a friend's house in the five towns, which is where I live and where I, that's what I did also. I ended up living by a friend's house. Um, and I just remember thinking like she got into Queens College and she's going to become a doctor and like, I'm going to do nothing. And like, I'm so stupid and I have such bad grades. And like, what's, like, I really had this vision of like, then I'm going to go to seminary. Then I'm going to have nowhere to live. Then I'm going to have no money, right? Like all the anxiety that just like takes you down a rabbit hole. And I wish I could go back to that moment and be like, it's going to be okay, Gila. You're not stupid. And if people learn differently and like you could get it, you, you're going to become a dietitian. I never would have believed it. The day that I got into my internship, I cr- I, I used to daven daily. Hashem, I know that I like, I know that like, this is my dream. I know this is my passion. I know I would cry. Please let me get into my internship, please. Like I would, I was so nervous. Like I was, I didn't think I'd get in because I was just always like felt so down and not smart. And like when I got in that day, like just like, just to go back, like Hashem will take care of you. And even if you don't get in, you'll be fine. And 
there's a, there's a path for you. And like, you are smart and you are capable. And, you know, one day your journey of like your disordered eating will help other people on their journey, you know, like use your negative experience to create like a really strong, powerful, positive one. I feel like that's so helpful just now, especially with the war going on here. And a lot of girls who are in Israel right now, time sometimes just feels like what it is right now, it's never going to change. Like the way I feel now is how my whole future is going to be. Yeah. Just to know that there is a future for all of us and it's going to get better, uh, maybe even way better than you even imagined. Yes. And by the way, just to just to like adapt the abundance mindset as opposed to the scarcity mindset, which is like obviously what I was very stuck in. And, and I've, I've obviously pulled this apart many times with my own therapist that like, there's a reason why I felt so anxious and I was kind of like on my own and like that makes sense. But also to be like, when you are able to develop, it's, it's really a skill. Again, it's really like a life skill that like you could say to Hashem, like, I don't see how this will work out, but I know that you could figure it out. You give, you, you tell Hashem that I believe that what that you could do anything, even though on paper, like I can't think of any solution. And then, like you know, if I'm looking back on my years in high school versus now, and I would tell myself, like Gila, don't worry, you're going to become a dietitian, and you're going to start your own business, and in Hashem, you're going to get married, and you're going to have kids, and um, everything's going to be like as you wanted it to be. Like I would never have believed it, but like if you try to develop this abundance mindset of like, I don't know how this will turn out, but I'm so curious. I can't wait to see. Then like life will take you in ways that you could never have imagined. That's, that's an amazing thing to hear. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us today, sharing your personal experience and your professional experience. This has been very, very insightful. Sure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of On Your Own. If you like this episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I would love to connect with you. If you've got any questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at onyourownpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. And in the meantime, happy adulting. Happy adulting.